All right. Well, I'm feeling very relaxed today. Because I'm not preaching. Jonathan, come on down, man. Clap it up for Jonathan Pasquale. Pasquale. Buongiorno, buongiorno. All right, let's, uh, let's just pray a blessing over Jonathan. All right, we don't, need to, we, don't, we don't need to pray for the Lord's presence. His presence is here, right? Lord, we just bless Jonathan and his lovely family, Lord. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you that they, man, they, they heard your voice like Abraham and obeyed and left Boston and became Philly fans in Jesus' name. Right? Now just, Lord, we just, we just thank, I mean, unbelievable, just hearing your voice willing to just step out and go into a land in which you will show them, Lord. And we just thank you for them. We thank you for who they are and what you're doing in them, Lord. And just a special blessing over them, particularly today as Jonathan is giving the word. Amen? Amen. 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 Thanks, brother. Love you, man. <laughs> Morning, guys. How are we? Awesome. Happy Father's Day. I just want to bless you, fathers, just in a... In a parts of our society that tries to confuse and devalue the, the role of the father in the family. I just want to bless you and say thank you. I grew up with an amazing dad, loud, crazy, obnoxious father, but he was an amazing man. And uh, I just I want to bless those that are fathers this morning and those that may have lost fathers or fathers that may have lost sons and daughters. I just bless you and just uh, ask for the Holy Spirit to encourage you and, and just pour his presence out over you today. Amen? All right, you guys ready to party? Yeah, yeah we're good. Take your hand. Put it on your head. Say, Jesus. Help. Help. Amen. All right, let's do this. Genesis chapter 3. I'm a man of few words. I like to keep it short and sweet. Jesus hit a prayer. He used a word. I like to do that. Help is a good word. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Put your finger at verse 8. You're going to get there before I do. I am in a season right now with my, my wife and I and, and our family are in a season that I believe... In, in many ways, is connected to where Bristol Hope is at and where we're going. And we're in a season of building something that's going to last. How many, how many want to work and build something that actually has ge an impact generationally? Amen? We don't, we, don't want to, uh, we, we don't want to make decisions or we don't want to build something that doesn't have a, a form of transformation in it. And the decisions that we're making as a family financially, where we're raising our family, how we're raising our family, our careers, uh, everything is all about, the, the factor has been about building. And I believe that there is, there are some things that uh, COVID is in, as, or excuse me, uh, that Bristol is in as well. And COVID really, in many ways, actually revealed some, it shook a lot of things. Amen? How many can say that this past year we got shook a little bit? I, I was encouraged by it in many ways. I know there was many travesties and a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion. Things were taking place. Many lost loved ones. And, and I know that God has met us tremendously in that season. But there was a silver lining in the sand that I observed. And that silver lining was that there was a shaking that took place that God was revealing, revealing to us what was most valuable. He was also revealing to us what was most valuable that was being taken advantage of. And for me, one of the things that was most valuable that I was taking advantage of was my neighbor. And I really feel that there is a, a reforming. I believe that there was, there's a, a reprioritization that heaven is implementing in the Big C Church as well as the local church, specifically for our region and our, 
and our state, even our city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so I want to share with you something prophetically this morning that I believe that God is speaking to us as a form of a building block that He is laying before us that we can use to build that will bless the generations to come. Amen? I, the title of my message this morning is The Lessons I've Learned from the Dinner Table. And I want to talk to you this morning about three separate dinner tables that I believe uh, really helped shape the man that I am. Obviously, I, I, for those that don't know, I grew up just outside of Boston. I had a, a, a big Italian family. I grew up at a dinner table that I was expected to be at every single night. It, was nothing some, it wasn't anything that was communicated. Like my mom or dad never sat me down and was like, hey, listen, you know, you, every night you need to be here. They just modeled it for us. Uh, I can remember, I mean, it was so much so that even when I was a teenager, I can remember, you know, at night getting off from school and hanging out with my friends, I'd call up mom, hey mom, what's for dinner? Chicken enchiladas, I'll be there, I will be there, you know, call up mom, hey mom, what's for dinner? Uh, we're doing tostadas tonight, oh my dear Jesus, he's alive, yes, I'll be there, you know, my mom was a good cook, mom, what's for dinner? Hey, uh, cream of tuna, I might have to work tonight, you know, just... I'm not so sure I should be there. But I had this expectation of being, of being at the dinner table. It was what we did. It didn't matter what we were doing. If I was working in the backyard with my father, as soon as mom shouted, dinner's ready, you dropped what you did, you stopped what you were doing, and you came and you sat down. That was the expectation. And again, it wasn't, ever, it wasn't anything that I can honestly remember for as far back as I can remember, there wasn't ever a time where my mom or dad ever set the boundary. They just modeled it, modeled it for us. It was something that was a very high value for them. More, more so than just getting together around the table, I remember specifically growing up that my father always had the best seat at the table. Now, my dad is a very, very frugal, low-maintenance Italian man from, like, northern Italy. He just, he did not care where he sat it did not matter. He'd never had a community, you know, he never communicated, this is my seat, carve his name in the wood of the chair, like nothing ever like that happened. I mean, if you took a plate of food, a T-bone steak with garlic mashed potatoes and broccoli, and put it at the top of the highest pine tree in our town, he would have scaled the tree and eaten there, if that was the case. Like, I mean, he just was so low maintenance about it. I mean, I can remember, I was telling my wife this, we were talking about being frugal and, you know, we're in this conversation about finances and what we're doing and the decisions we're making and you know setting ourselves up for the future and I was just chatting with her about this is how frugal my father was he you know my dad is again I, I don't know if you grew up with with parents like this my dad does not believe in throwing away old clothes or donating them if you have a shirt that has enough holes see some holes in a shirt you can still wear okay my dad would wear shirts that had holes in it didn't matter like it drove my mom nuts but for my dad and my dad would wear shirts even that have holes in the front where like his chest hairs would kind of stick out <laughs> you know what I mean like it'd just be like hey how you doing you know it was just that was just his thing but when it had enough holes he would retire the shirt and they would then become rags right? He would use those to clean up the oil when he was changing in the truck. He would clean up the grease of working on a tool. It didn't matter. But you see, my father, my father took it to the next level. Like, he didn't just scrap shirts. He scrapped underwear. And so, <laughs> if he's watching, I'm going to get beaten so badly. I, I can remember in, I can remember in high school, I can remember in high school, this is how frugal my father was. I can remember in high school, my dad used to have this ratchet set, 
And it was one of his favorite ratchet sets. His father gave it to him. It's this metal, tin metal ratchet set. had all, all various sizes in it. And he, the latch broke. And I remember <laughs> one year he got so annoyed with it that he, he had sent me out. We were working on a project in high school, and he had sent me out to go get the ratchet set. And I remember walking into his shed, and because the, rat, the latch had broke, every now and again they would, like, tip over, and the fittings, you know, the, um, the fittings would fall out. And so he, he took, he cut the rubber band or the elastic off of his old man whitey tighties and tied the box real tight. And I walk in with his whitey tighty ratchet set and I'm like, what are you doing? And so I took a picture of it and I sent it to the Italian man's hall of fame. And I said, nobody has anything to say about Giovanni Valiano Pasquale. I'll tell you that right now. But Again, he wasn't high maintenance about his spot at the table. About Really, he just wanted a hot meal. But uh, as, as I got older, I started to realize that my dad's seat, I was the one that was making space for it. I was the one that was giving honor to it. Like when friends would come over and they would have dinner with us. Oh, no, no, buddy, don't sit there. That's where my dad sits. He wouldn't even be the one to police it. He didn't care. Like I said, he'll go to sit in a tree. It doesn't matter. He just, but it was my father's spot. My sisters and I, we honored dad's spot. It was the best seat at the table. He had, he could see down the hall. His back was to the, his back was to the wall so nobody could come up and scare him from behind because he hated being startled. And he had full view of everyone at the table. He had total view of the side dory, the whole kitchen to himself. It was the best spot at the table. And I'll never forget as long as I live the fact that that's where dad sat. You know, he, it was, Always to me, something that I'll always remember. And, and like I said, it was never something that he had a conversation with about. But I realized, I realized something. My dad was the one who modeled for me that we are expected at the table. But it was the son who honors the father and gives him the best spot at the table. It's imperative for you to understand. You are invited to sit with the Lord at the dinner table. But if in your life, if the Father does not have the best seat at your table, nothing you do will matter. I promise you that. And I'm finding that in this season, that I, my, my priorities and my values are being reconfi excuse me, reconfigured, redesigned in a sense. So that the emphasis and the desires of the Father are the things that last at the end of the day. Position matters. Position does matter. Let me prove to you how position matters. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This is a very, very popular, very popular passage of Scripture. This is obviously the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among, excuse me, the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Everyone say, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Let's stop there for just a second. Let me paint you a picture. Here we go. Eve's in, in the garden. She's hanging out. The serpent comes up. Hey, girl, what's going on? How you doing? Have this fruit. Super yummy. Give you knowledge. She's like, I don't know. Don't worry about it. Did God really say this? She's like, okay, that's fine. Takes a bite. Adam comes in. He's like, hey, babe, what's going on? She's like, hey, I have this fruit. Super awesome. He's like, I don't think we're supposed to eat that. She goes, don't control me. The serpent told me to do this. It's okay. He's like, all right. She's like, do you want to sleep on the couch? No, here's the fruit. That's kind of the nature of what's happening, right? So this is, the, this is you know, the Bible according to Pasquale. Don't read that Bible. Anyway, so, but essentially, but essentially all, all jokes aside, Adam, to Adam makes a decision that has significant ramifications. Can we all agree about that? And we all, we all refer to the fall, right? The fall of man. What's fascinating is that I, the, the first part of this in verse 8, it's so fascinating. It fascinates me that God, God comes into the garden walking. Now, my son Micah, he's two. He is the most adorable beautiful little terrorist I've ever met in my life. Yeah, amen. And so, but what's fascinating, what's, what's awesome is if I am in the living room and he is in not the same room as me, if there is an extended period of time, I give it 20 seconds, if I do not hear him for over 20 seconds, I immediately get up and come running to find out what type of damage control I need to do in order to remediate the fact that he used mommy's lipstick on the wall or took a permanent marker to daddy's pillowcase or has found dynamite. How did I have dynamite? Where did you get dynamite? Why are you lighting the wick? I don't know, but somehow he got C4. Don't ask me. He's trying to light the house on fire and I will come. I, but I don't walk. Okay. I've got like this Micah, you know, like babe. Yeah. Where's Micah? You know, like it's this quick because I know the decisions being made I'm going to have massive damage control to do. Amen. I'm not walking. I am not walking, okay? But the father comes walking, and then he asks this question. Where are you? And I, I struggle. I struggle with this notion. I struggle with the notion that an omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign God is seeking to acquire information that he previously did not know as it pertains to the geographical location of his son. How does an all-knowing God miss where his son is? See, some scholars argue that the tone implied here is actually not God seeking the location of his son, but actually walking into the garden, seeking communion with his son, and poses a question. And the question posed is motivated because Adam has, has made a decision to step down from the position awarded, afforded, and given to him by identity. Not based on what he did, not based on his capacity to climb the corporate ladder or step on his coworkers next to him to get ahead or spend the extra 12 or 15 hours a day trying to finish the report and neglecting all other responsibilities so that the VP spot can be his in the corner office and he can see the bay. That wasn't the position he was given. He was given a position as a son 
And the Son has this position, this place of government and authority given to Him as a result of choice. God choosing. And Adam's decision was to step down from that position and God's question, where are you, was actually the grieving of a father saying there's a gulf between you and I. Where are you? Where have you, where have you gone? Was what I did for you not enough? It wasn't, it wasn't an angry father coming stampeding into the room. What are you doing? No, it was, I'm seeking communion. Where are you? I, there's this disconnect. Where, where are you? You've left your position next to me. You've left the, your spot at the dinner table. You can see the mercy of God further down towards the end of chapter 3. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold the man. This is after he sets the curse in the new boundaries. He establishes a new, a new sense of, Uh, of responsibility for the man and the woman. He curses the serpent. And it says in verse 22, he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the the Lord God sent him out. Some translation says that God drove them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he has taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to the Garden of the Tree of Life. You see, what's fascinating to me is that it sounds like an angry dad grounding his kids. But consider the implication of the cherubim. Why was the cherubim, what was the cherubim used in Scripture? Every time the cherubim is mentioned in Scripture, it is where the presence of the Lord is being hosted so as to encounter man. So what does God do in the place where man made the worst decision? He sets up a place still to meet him and encounter him. Because he knows that if man were, in, were allowed back into the garden and they were to eat the fruit again, they would live forever, forever in an eternal state of sin and he would not be able to redeem them. So a merciful God creates a boundary but still creates a place of access for him to encounter his children even when they hurt him the worst. Position matters. Position matters. Where are you? Where are you? It's the same reason why Hebrews says that Jesus now has ascended into the heavens to take the seat at the right hand of the Father. Position matters. You see, position in the kingdom, I used to have this idea, I'm an incredibly goal-driven individual. Whatever, any task I get, I seek to find the best way possible to acquire my outcome, to do it as efficiently as, as, efficiently as possible and as, with excellence, as, as much excellence as possible. But you see, in the kingdom, position isn't so much what you do as much as who you know. Position deals not so much with your capacity for production, but as much as it is for your ability to be aware of who you know and who knows you. Amen? Our ability to be aware of the Father, to be aware of what He has called us. And, and I, I just, this concept, this lesson of seeing my dad growing up, setting the stage for the table that I was expected to be at. But I just remember this same place of my father always having the best spot at the table. Always having the best spot at the table. And I can recollect even now the times in my life where setting the table of my own life, not giving God the best spot at my table, 
all of which I worked for had passed, fallen away. Nothing had lasted. Now in this place of reprioritization and revaluing and resetting of the values, I'm, I'm realizing, Dad, you have the best spot. You've afforded me the position at the table, and now I would like for your inclusion in everything. I want you to be a part of everything. And he began to set the stage. He began to show me that the modeling of, of the table that I grew up was setting the stage for something else, for, for something of a life that meant that was designed for influence and designed for impact. You know, the second table that I, uh, the second table that really helped to shape me in a lot of ways, this, you know, my, I learned that I had a place, an expected place at the table. I learned that the father needs the best place, the best spot at the table. But you see, what's fascinating is not only does the father have the best place, but there, I'm not the only one at the table. There are other brothers and sisters of the Lord at the table. And I, I had this spiritual, uh, this, this uh, woman in my life, Dana Schuler. I met her when I was 17 years old in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I was on a missions trip. And uh, she came come over to minister to me. I, I met her. Could you take my mic down a little bit too? Thank you. I'm loud enough. I actually may not even need this sometimes. But um, I met her when I was 17. And she had had a word from the Lord. I met her again in 2008. She had brought her son and her daughter, and I, I just fell in love with this family. She was an amazing woman, and probably second to my mother, my, my biological mother who's interceded for me since I was 10 years old. She led me to the Lord. Second to my mom, this woman has probably been one of the most uh, greatest influencers in my life in shaping my spiritual walk. And Dana had a word from the Lord in 2008 that she was supposed to draw me into her family among other friends that we had met on the trip from around the, you know, from around the, uh, America that we had gotten to know, friends from Ohio and Florida. And she was to invest in our lives, create space and invite us. And so she had, she was, uh, she had a house up in Lake Michigan, uh, near, right off, uh, in Crystal Lake, right off Lake Michigan. And so she would fly us up once or twice a year just to spend the weekend together, to connect and to build relationship, talk about the Lord, and, and just to spend time together. And she would finance the entire trip for all of us just to give us an opportunity to, to meet one another and, and to encounter one another and grow. And uh, I'm still, to this day, I'm, I'm in contact with her sons and, or her son and her daughters. And uh, she recently passed about three years ago, um, and uh, I want to say she lost a battle to, to brain cancer, but I, uh, I know she's celebrating right now. So it's like, it was sad watching her go. I'll, I'll, I'll be, that, that's an understatement. But I know that um, she smiles. She smiles now. No more suffering. And I, but I remember specifically that her dinner table transformed so much about my spiritual walk. Can I share with you some things I learned at the dinner table? You all right with that? You guys doing okay? All right. I know there's ribs waiting for some of you guys, so calm down. All right, chill out. Brandon, calm down, would you, please? Thank you. All right. Dana's table had probably, I don't know, 12 seats. It was huge, huge, big table. had like one of these circular things you could put stuff on and spin in the middle. It was awesome. Like the, the, the kitchen will like overlook the lake. It was beautiful. And I remember me and my, you know, one of my best friends, JR, still to this day, one of my best friends in the world. And, you know, we would go up, we, you know, his, uh, his wife at the time was come. And then Taylor obviously got involved as well. When we started dating, Dana just brought her in. She immediately got grafted into the family. And we would sit around the dinner table. And there was something so fascinating about this dinner table because Dana uh, was a very, she was a very proper woman, incredibly proper. And I'll never, this was the first time I had ever had this, because when I sat down, like mom, it, it was almost like a ravenous dog, like mom would put down 
the table. And, and when we started, like when my dad got saved when I was 16 years old and gave his life to Jesus, he got delivered to 35 years of alcoholism, like had a Jacob experience in the middle of the night, like Lord literally like broke a leg and he just kept going. And uh, at that point, we started praying as a family. But before that, she would literally just put food down and we would just, you know, like just go to town. And, but with Dana, Dana's table was always different. Dana, we would sit and we would wait until Dana had sat down, her food had been presented, and when, you know, we would go out to these really nice restaurants, and so obviously not, every, not all the food comes at once, right? So when you sit down and they put a plate in front of each person, we waited until Dana mom had her plate, and then she would raise her fork, and we would all begin to eat. And I know that sounds kind of peculiar. I didn't grow up like that. That was not my, that was not my, my jam. But for Dana, that was her jam. And it was something that her children communicated to the rest of the kids that were grafted into the family. They said, hey, we're going to wait for mom and dad to be ready. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. You know, I'm like trying to like, like wipe the juice away from like the first like 14 bites I'd already eaten. They're like, how do you eat so fast? I'm like, half the food's gone already. But I, I sat and I waited and I remembered seeing it was the first time that I had ever seen honor actually communicated at the dinner table. Not that we didn't have honor growing up, but it was honor communicated. And it wasn't manipulation. It wasn't control. It was actually a place where, where we reflected and said, Mom and Dad, you have given us permission to be here. And as a result, we would like to wait. We will hold off our experience of our food until you have begun to start so that you have the first few bites. It was a place of honor. It was a place of showing that there is value for those that have called us all to the dinner table. Amen? There was a place of honor. But again, we, I wasn't the only one. JR was there, his, his wife, my wife, JR's sister was there, Dana's kids were there. And I remember, I remember this table being the first time, the first time that I had ever seen 1 Corinthians chapter 12 manifested in that we were all many parts but where one suffers, all suffers. And where one rejoices, we all rejoice. It was the first time I was ever part of a dinner table where I, I genuinely, not, I didn't have to manufacture it. I didn't have to like fake it till I make it. It was the first time genuinely where I was not trying to one-up the next person telling a story. Okay. I want to share some things about this dinner table that might... Um, that might sound really harsh, and they're not. They're not meant to be. I, wanna, I just want you to hear me as a brother. Can, I, can we have like a really cool, just raw moment? Is that okay? I, I swear I'm not trying to offend in any way. I want to share some things that are very, very, I really believe are essential for us to grow in character and in wisdom and understanding of how to impact our region. But there are things that we're, are going to almost feel like a shot of whiskey a little bit. Like, oh, it burns all the way down. You know, like it just does, but it's... It's so empowerful, but if you're offended, please don't be offended. I love you, but if you are, Dave's email is dave at bristolhope.com. I'm just kidding. All right. It gets forwarded. It gets forwarded to Josh. He's on vacation. Anyway, all right. It was the first time I had genuinely preferred to hear the life experiences and the testimonies and the opinions and the, and the encounters of the person to my right and to my left. I came to the table seeking to know, not just to be known. There are times where we walk through those doors caring about no one else's affairs but our own. And that sets a tone that can really be difficult for you to engage and to grow in relationship with people. 
I'm just, hear me, love, hugs, always hugs, okay? Co you know, we're coming out of COVID, we can hug each other, put a mask on if you need one, but I just, it was the first time that when someone shared, I wasn't waiting for them to stop talking so that I could. I, I, I genuinely cared about someone, and I realized that the tone that was set in honor for Dana she communicated, even subconsciously, it wasn't even something that she had to be like, okay, here are the boundaries now. Like I said, it wasn't controlled. It was an atmosphere that was a place of celebration of one another. It was a place of celebration. And, and there, was, there was a place of encountering, you know, where a friend would share, you know, my, my best friend JR would share about his career and he would share about his life and he would share about his struggle and they would talk about him and his girlfriend would talk about their struggles and, you know, what God's been doing with their relationship and, and we weren't waiting. Maybe we didn't understand what they were going through, but we sought to ask questions so as to understand them because we were seeking to empathize. We were seeking to partner with them in them. We were seeking to understand what they were going through so that we could be a resource. Maybe we didn't have the right words. Maybe we didn't know how to pray, but we could be present with them in their struggle. We could be present with them when they were rejoicing. Like they had an amazing, awesome, you know, promotion at work and we would celebrate them. There was never any competition at the dinner table. There was honor for the father and mother that were there but there was a demonstration of respect and honor for the other person sitting at the dinner table. We came together for the sake of getting to know, not just to be known. Being known was implied because as welcome as I was at the dinner table, so was the person to my left and my right. So was the person to the left and my right. When they would share something that, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> You know, I wasn't seeking an opportunity to marginalize them as a result of their opinion. Oh, boy, here we go. Okay. Jesus. I could have a conflict with somebody at the dinner table. And not even two hours later, out on the boat in the lake, we're hugging and loving on each other. Because we realized that we were more interested in being in relationship than we were being right. I'll be honest with you. You, some of us, Myself at times, just being honest, we care more about being right than we do being about being in relationship. And then we say, well, they just don't understand me. No, you're just annoying and don't have the ability to empathize. You just don't want to actually yield how you feel about a situation and their perspective or reasoning or understanding about a situation based on their past or their encounter or how they feel about a political party or they how to feel about the, what God's doing at the church or... You've taken it and you've taken their opinion and you've marked them for their identity as their opinion instead of hearing where they're coming from so as to understand and be present with them and walk with them regardless of how they make you feel. Do you know what real freedom is? Real freedom is the, the ability for you to act, behave, and say whatever you want and it not to affect me. I'm responsible for me, not you. I'm responsible for you. I'm responsible for me and how I react. And so at the dinner table, there was this place of transparency. There was this, and, and that, that opportunity to be known, that opportunity to be known and to know invited you to be transparent. It invited you to say, you know what? I, I honestly, I, countless times, ask my, countless times, I don't even know why I'm saying this was said all the time at the dinner table. I don't even know why I'm saying this. I haven't told anybody this. You know, we really haven't really talked to many people in our life about this, but here at this dinner table, I feel safe. 
I feel safe. I feel like you have asked questions because you're not, you don't have an ulterior motive for any other reason except to understand what I'm going through. And when we would get done, Dana would then prompt us. You know, JP just got done sharing about a really tough part in his life right now. Let's go around the table and just speak one word of encouragement from each person to JP. And all of them would go around and we would sit there and we would, we would cry because you'd get done sharing some of the worst stuff you're going through and people would say, hey, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Hey, we love you. This is what I see God doing over you. This is what I see God doing to you. And they didn't care how long it took. Sometimes we would spend like an hour and a half, two hours on one couple or one person because they just needed it. But we were all at the table for the sake of honoring one another. It didn't matter who was taking the most time. It didn't matter if one person was, you know, trying to share the biggest or baddest testimony. It didn't matter. No one mattered. What mattered was the fact that we were all together and we were pursuing the collective good of knowing to pour into one another. There was a place of transparency, there was safety at the table. There was honor at the table. There was respect at the table. And we were, we were, we were walking into this place. We were walking into, the, we, honestly, it, it was the first time, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There was a place at the table that set the tone, that, that marked me. I didn't compete with my brother next to me. I didn't, I wasn't looking to try and find a way to, to justify how I felt about a situation. I was able to confront my, I was able to confront my brother at the time. I, I can remember one specific, let me, I, let me just finish this and I'm going to go to the third table and then we're going to wrap up. We had had a conversation, my, one of my good buddies, JR and I, and, and he had said, he had said a couple things at the dinner, at the dinner table. This was probably lunchtime. And we were, he had made a couple of remarks, and we, him and I would go back and forth. Him and I were like, they actually used to call us the John and John show. You ever see, like, obviously gasoline, like, stands alone, but when you put a match next to gasoline, you get a fire, right? We, we understand the science here. I was a match, he was gasoline. Like, when we came together, it was just nuts. Like, my wife, <laughs> my wife, the first time she saw us, she was like, wow. <laughs> that was a lot, honey. Um, I mean, we, I mean, we were psychotic. And it was, but it was like, we were like, I was the yang to his ying. Like, it was just, it was awesome. And I remember one specific conversation that we had, and I approached him after because he had made a couple remarks that seemed almost like daggers, like passive-aggressive. And I don't do passive-aggressive very well. Like, I, I just, it, it's, I would rather you, <laughs> I'd rather you walk up and just throw an elbow in my face than be passive-aggressive. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. And... But he, he made these comments, and so I approached him after, because we were all bunking, and, we, you know, Dana had this, it was a big house, so we all had, like, you know, our, our rooms, and we'd have, like, our roommate or whatever, and, and JR, even when we were married, I was still, like, rocking, I was still bunk up with JR, and, but it was funny, because we, I, I came in after that lunch, and I said, hey, dude, I said, you know, I said, bro, I said, I feel like, you, you know, did I do something wrong? And he's like, what? I said, did I do something wrong? And he's like, no, I said, man, I, I said, listen to what I said, because this was, this was gold, if I do say so myself. 
Not prideful, because there's time. Listen, I talk so much that honestly, probably like, you know, every now and again, I'm like, ooh, that's good. That did not come from me. This was the Lord. This was definitely the Lord. He just kind of like, it's like a geyser, and he just every now and again, he throws a, you know, throws a nugget down there. People are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, that's a good one. The rest of it just, that just sounds like noise, you know. All right, anyway. I said, I said, do you, you know, did I do something wrong? No, no, you didn't do anything wrong. Why? I said, man, you, I said, you, you made these remarks and as much as I wanted them not to hurt me, they did. And listen to this. And I know your heart towards me and that you love me and that you would never try to hurt me. So if I, I wanted to see if I did something that caused you to maybe react in a negative way and to apologize. And he walks up and he hugs me and he looks at me and he goes, you're amazing. You're coming to me because you think that I'm upset with you and you're finding a reason to apologize for no, buddy, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I, I did not mean to make those comments. That was not, if I need, if you want me to, I'll let the family know that that was not what I was, I said, no, 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 it's not that big of a deal. I just know you and I know us. And I, I know that there's, I know you're our point of connection. I, what was I doing? I was shooting the fox in the garden of our relationship and hanging it. I know this is a bit graphic, sorry, but I was hanging it on the garage door because I wanted the other foxes to know that you can't hunt here. You're not going to gnaw at the roots of the garden of my relationship with my brother. I'm, not, I'm going to guard my connection with this person. I'm going to guard my connection and my relationship and so as to not allow things and factors to influence my ability to see my brother in a light that God does not see him or see us. Safety promotes conflict. Conflict is healthy. It's necessary. Don't run from it. But you see, my father set the example. You're expected at the table. I made place for, my, for the best spot at the, at the table for my father. Dana's table communicated to me that your table is meant to be a place of honor. It is meant to be a place of safety. It is meant to be a place of encounter. It is meant to be a place of preferring one another so that we can all embody a Philippians chapter 2 table. This is the goal. This is how I want to end. I want in my life a Philippians chapter 2 table. Because this is, this is essentially what I believe as we've reevaluated our priorities during the COVID era. We have learned to ostracize our neighbor. We have learned to question the motives of our neighbor. We have learned, we have learned in many ways to hate our neighbor. We have learned in many ways to to be weary of our neighbor. We've learned in many ways to be cautious of one another. Listen, I get it. There was, an, there was a sickness, regardless of your perspective of how things went down or what took place or who handled what or who said what. I don't care. But there was an issue. And now I'm realizing that as we come to the end of it, what lasts and what is most important at the end of the day is relationship. Our capacity for community. But what I walked away from, and I've explained this multiple times, I can't tell you how many times I tried to get people to come with me to, to Dana's table. And I realized that the lessons that I had learned from these tables gave me permission, showed me what kind of opportunity I had to be a Philippians chapter 2 table. A Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 table that says, do nothing of selfish motive or vainful conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind, verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
I, here's how I want to close. I believe that there is a redefinition of evangelism. And I, I, I grew up under amazing men and women of God, like spiritual moms and dads. You know, I, I remember sitting... I remember sitting at some of the dinner tables that I've had the privilege and honor and hum- humble opportunity to be a part of. Like, I'm like, how did I get here? Did I, like, sneak in the room? Like, seriously, what happened? To listen to the conversations that I've listened to and to hear people talk about what God is doing in the earth and, and what he is, how, how he's beginning to manifest himself and the signs and wonders that are taking place. But what's fascinating to me is I, I believe specifically for our region, this is a word I believe for our region, that God is looking to use the dinner table as a delivery system for the message of the kingdom of God. I believe that he is, inv- he is giving us access, reprioritizing, reforming our values, and he's asking, will you invite your neighbor to your dinner table? Will you invite your neighbor back to the, and not just for the sake, in our hearts, we give God the best place, but at our table, we give our neighbor the best place. We give our neighbor an, uh, neighbor an opportunity to come with no other agenda, no other motive, but except to get to know our neighbor, except to get to know and to create a space of safety and to create a space of respect. So as not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but that we would look, we would get to know the elderly couple behind our, that lives behind us, or maybe the neighbor, the, the single mother who's been trying to work two jobs to provide for three kids, and, and she hasn't had a, a home-cooked meal in a real long time because she just doesn't have the time to, so she's making microwave meals. But you walk over with a, a brand-new lasagna and say, hey, listen, we'd love for you to come. We'd love for you to come and sit at our table. My kids would love to spend time with your kids. And you make space and you create that opportunity. Well, Jonathan, I'm just, it's a bit uncomfortable for me. That's okay. You signed up for something else. You might want to know the ramifications of the decision that you've made when you followed Christ. And that decision was to love your neighbor. That decision was to open your dinner table. That decision was to invite your neighbor back to the table of the Lord to invite your neighbor back to say this is a safe place maybe you don't need to start with just your neighbor outside your community maybe you need to start with your neighbor sitting next to you in the pew and to say hey there's been a rift between us there's been some strife between us I I want to invite you I'd like to host you at my house I'd like, to, I'd like to host you. I'd like to provide a meal for you. I'd like for my family and I to get to know you. I'd like, I'd like for us to have an opportunity to invest in you with no other agenda except to know you and for you to know me. That the, that the father, the, the man that called us all to the dinner table would recognize that his children are all welcome and his children are making space not just for him but for each other. There's a standard. There's a standard set forth in the gospel that they would know that I was with you that they would know the kingdom of God by the way you love one another. That they would know. Who's they? Your neighbor. That they would know by the way we love one another. How we've set forth an example for one another. How we've, how we've been an example and an encouragement to one another. This is, this is my heart's cry for today. Are you okay? I'm wrapping up. Don't worry. Lunch is on its way. I'm, I'm actively praying right now for the salvation of my coworkers. I'm actively, I'm actively interceding right now for, for friends. For you know, my boss will share with me about a, a you know, a, a family who's who's fighting right now for, for a loved one, or or, or even, you know, 
even a friend of mine, I just, I, I felt a prompting from the Lord this past week to call him. And I, I, we were on our way up to Boston this, two weeks ago. And I called him on the way up and he was actually on his way home from the hospital after visiting his son who was 23 and a half weeks born. Born 23 and a half weeks early. There was fighting for his life. And he said, dude, I have, you have no idea how much I just needed to hear a brother's voice. His son passed six days later. And um, like, I often wonder sometimes, I don't mean to get emotional. You can ask my wife, I cry all the time. Like, I'm a man's man. I have no problem with it. Hairy chest, drink whiskey, love working. I'm a plumber. God, I love it. No joke, no problem. But honestly, I'm a man. I love crying. Like, because it's an emotion that for me is so amazing. Pastor Dave's like shaking his head like, dear Jesus. But <laughs> serious, serious. No, because you want to know why? Because I, I grew up, I did. I grew up with so many men telling me, don't cry. But I love, I love like how God moves me to emotion because the Father is an emotional man and there's something so powerful about loving your neighbor. Even, even if it's a phone call, even if it's an opportunity to just say like, I'm here with you. Even if it's an opportunity, maybe, it's, maybe, it's, maybe you're not at the point where you can host somebody at your dinner table. Maybe you're not at the point where you can, you, know, you can say, well, you know, maybe you don't have financially the ability to provide a meal for somebody, but you can make a phone call or you can stop by or you can, you can shoot them a text. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to say, hey man, I love you and I'm praying for you and your son. And I want you to know that you're not alone. And I know what it's like to have a child that you're so nervous about how the outcome is. I mean, when we were, I can remember sitting there crying, literally 11.30 at night as I'm driving down the road trying to keep my eyes open. And I'm crying over the phone with him because I remember sitting there empathizing with the fact that my son had a limb difference in the womb. We didn't know what he was going to be born with. It was one of the scariest points of our life. I remember that struggle. And sometimes I just needed to invite my friend to the dinner table spiritually and say, I am with you. I am for you. I am praying with you. You are not alone in this. Don't ever think for a second that you're alone in this. I'm going to pray for you right now. Be encouraged that as a dad, I know you. I know where you're, I know your struggle. I may not understand your hell, but I'm trying to. And I want you to know you're not alone. And it's by that love, it's by that place of self-sacrifice, not doing things out of selfish ambition or conceit or, or uh, you know, a self-preserving agenda, but going out and saying, neighbor, neighbor, there's a king that sits at my table. There's a king that sits at my table. He's called me a son. Come to my table, please. There's no other agenda. I'm not trying to do anything except introduce you to the best man that I've ever met in my entire life. He's called me a son when no one else wanted to. He's shown me I've been loved. I've walked through the worst of the worst. Come to my table. Well, you don't know what I've done. That's okay. Come to my table. You don't know what I've said. That's okay. Come to my table. I don't live like you. Come to my table. Come to my table. Please come to my table. There's a man who has the best seat at the house. He will love you like no one else will. He will transform your life. He will take away the demons. He'll show you what it looks like to be healed. He'll walk with you. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer. It doesn't mean that you won't endure trial. It just means when you come back to the table and you surrender your life to the Father that you get to walk through life with your best friend. Come to my table. Please. Well, Jonathan, you know, I, it's just not my thing. It's just not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Then go back to the Father and ask Him to give you the values that He lives by. They will know who you are. They will know who I am by the way you love one another. Start with a phone call, please. Start with a phone call. Start with a text message. You know, I had a prompting to call a friend. Call the friend. 
I had a prompting to say, you know, God bless you in the line. Say, God bless you in the line. Give God the best place at your table. He's called you to the table. Give God the best place at your table. And I promise you, when he has the best seat at your table, everything you do, everything you do with God at the head, everything you do will last. And there will be an impact for generations to come. So that at the end, when everyone else is celebrating and thinking about your life, they'll look back and they'll say, man, when I was with this person, it was like I was closer to the Father. Call your neighbor back to your table, please. Let me pray for you. Stand up. Can I just ask you to put your hand on your heart? I, I just want to release a blessing over you this morning. And again, I, I pray, I, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray. If I've said anything to offend you, I, I meant never to offend you. Please hear my heart. I come in, in total humility because these are things that I have had to walk out these are things that I am walking out. These are things that I am continuing to learn. These are things that I am believing for in my house. That, that when, the, when my neighbor comes to my, sits at my dinner table, they see my sons seated at the dinner table with me. They see me, see, they see me honoring my wife for, for cooking a meal and being the matriarch of our home. And they see me setting an example and loving my sons well and asking about their day. They see me present and content. They see me emotionally healthy. They see me not trying to be demonstrative, not trying to control or manipulate. They see me creating space for those that I have been responsible to and responsible for. And that as a result, you know, Dave's message just a, a couple weeks ago, how what was most powerful was that the servants in the, in the temple of King Solomon were just as happy as a reflection that it was as a reflection of the emotional health set forth as a tone in the house. I, I, I pray, this is what I pray. I pray, Father, right now, just lift your hands to heaven. I pray right now, Father God, that you would release a blessing over every single household today. That you would rest, your presence would rest on the, on the roofs of every single house today. That you would clear the closets that if any closets be found in our lives, that you would burn every item in the closet and you would draw us back to place of surrender. That you would clear any form of, uh, of broken relationship today. That you would mend marriages. That you would mend relationships with heart. That the hearts of sons would turn back to the fathers and the fathers to the sons. That you would, you would mend hearts that have been broken, rejected, abandoned, or offended. That you would bring us back to a place of humility to say, I prefer my neighbor over myself. That the world will know that I serve King Jesus by the way I love and the person next to me. Father, release your hand upon every house this morning that your anointing would go forth, that you are redefining, and I even just bless the fathers right now, that if you've had a, 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 a misrepresentation of God, a misrepresentation of a father, that, that there's a, a, an immovable object who's emotionless, who doesn't have the ability to connect, that just goes through life and like a snowstorm, not caring about what happens, that God would redefine that image in your mind, that he would reveal to you that he is for you, not against you, that he is in love with you, not seeking to, uh, to uh, draw you into a place of production, but that he's met you, even at the place of your weakest moment, that he set up a cherubim, because he still seeks to encounter you, even when you've made a poor decision, that even when you've made a mess, he says, I'll stand in the middle of your mess, and I'll help you clean it up. God, would you pour forth your anointing now over your sons, over your daughters, over your fathers, and over your mothers, and over your neighbors, God. I thank you that you've blessed, that you're pouring out a blessing on every single every single table today, God. That the city of brotherly love would be impacted because Bristol Hope Assembly existed. 
that we opened our table and say, neighbor, come. I want you to meet my father in Jesus' name. It's an important time of word. And um, during worship, Susie Merchant came over to me. She felt that in the spirit that there was something happening in terms of, she saw Jonathan up here worshiping in the front, which he does most Sundays. She felt like the Holy Spirit was just saying that there's a line of demarcation that Jonathan was setting up. And I said, oh, that's interesting because Jonathan's actually preaching today. So we'll see what he, what he drops there. And I think that there is this line of demarcation that is, you know, it's time for us to be more inviting to one another. But even more than that, and that is to not be so arrogant. Right, Philippines 2, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort, if any fellowship, if any affection, it's almost like Paul here is saying, look, if, if you can't really say that you're living a life that is devoted to Christ if these things aren't there, right? If any. And that's when he goes on to say, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness. Do all things without complaining. Do all things without disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's actually quite amazing. If you have any love of Christ, if you have any, if you have any blood of Jesus on you, then we should be walking out in this way. That's what Paul the Apostle is saying. Not lifting yourself up, not lifting your name up, not lifting up your stuff, but meeting people where they're at. Mm. So we're going to open up for a little bit the altar. If, if there are things that you need prayer for, but particularly in conjunction with this message, but, would you, but even if there's other things, we want to invite you to come on down and receive from the altar team. We're just going to ask that any kind of conversation and whatnot can happen in the lobby or over in the multi-purpose room. We really want to keep this just a, a special time and a special place to receive prayer, receive from the Lord. So have a wonderful week. We hope to see you on Wednesday if you can for prayer. But uh, we will be here Sunday. Have a wonderful Father's Day. Make sure we're doing without conceit and with humility. Amen? Amen.